Amen. You guys can be seated at this time. So today is week three in our Advent series, which is just the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas where we unpack what the birth of Christ really meant. In week one, we talked about how with the birth of Christ came a resurgence of joy in all who find peace in him. And then the second week, James led us through how the birth of Christ is the intersection of God's glory and your peace. And today we're going to talk about how the birth of Christ brought the kingdom of God to earth. So I'm going to jump straight into the scripture. Um, Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 33. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. With the birth of Christ, the kingdom of God came down to us. And to really understand this, I want to first walk you through the historical context of this event. And to do that, we have to go back to King David, who was referenced many times throughout the Gospels, twice in this passage alone. Um, The beginning of Matthew starts out a genealogy of Christ Jesus, um, the son of David. In this, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Um, And then again in verse 32, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So why is David so important thousands of years after David lived? Why, Why is that still such a big deal? Why is Jesus called the son of David? What importance is there in that term? And the answer is that Jesus was the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to David centuries beforehand. So I'm going to take you back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, when your days are fulfilled, this is the Lord speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now the thing about the Old Testament prophecies is that there's oftentimes both an immediate historical context to them as well as a spiritual meaning that points forward to Christ. 
And so in this case, in the case of 2 Samuel, it probably immediately pointed forward to Solomon, David's immediate offspring, his son who would end up building the temple. It referenced how his son will build him a house, and when he commits iniquity, we all know Solomon had a lot of problems. But after Solomon died, it kind of thwarted the promise of your throne shall be established forever. What does forever mean if that king dies and the throne is no more? And then they are exiled by Assyria and Babylon. They're taken out of their land and there's no throne in Jerusalem anymore. And so at this point, the the Jews know God well enough to know that he does not fail in any of the promises that he makes. He is faithful, he is steadfast, and he would not make a promise that he was not going to keep. And so after Solomon died, they started waiting for a son of David who would assume the throne of Israel, a throne which would be established forever as God had promised. And this figure they called the Messiah. The Messiah is a word that we have derived from a Hebrew word, um, and it means anointed one. If you're not familiar with Messiah, you're probably familiar with the equivalent of that word that comes from a Greek word, and that word is Christ. This is a bit confusing because Christ is so often used as a name, Jesus Christ, uh, in the name of Christ. And we say that so often. Um, It was actually a couple years into my own faith that I learned that Christ was not Jesus' last name. And it might be news for some of you today. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It was originally a title, and it, it's the same word as Messiah, but it just came from Greek, and it means anointed one. And this idea of anointing, this, this word that meant anointed one, would have already brought them to associate the idea of a kingdom in their minds. Because we don't really do this, so we don't get it. It doesn't do that for us. We hear anointed one, and it doesn't throw kingdom in our face. But Back then, kings were anointed. A person who was to be king, he was anointed first. And it was at his anointing that he was officially like, okay, this guy's going to become the king. He was anointed. He has favor in the Lord's eyes and he's on his way to the throne. So words in Christ would have brought the association in the minds of the Jews of a king and a kingdom the way that words like court or crown or reign I'll switch my over here. All throughout the New Testament. But as you read the Gospels, it's evident that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, is here right now. In Matthew 2.2, it says, As the wise men seek Jesus, they ask Herod, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In Matthew 3.2, when John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1.15, when Jesus began his ministry, his message was, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
in Matthew 4.23, when Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in Galilee, he said that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Luke 17.20 and 21, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The reason we don't immediately recognize the kingdom that did come with the birth of Christ is because it's not what we would expect in a kingdom. And it's certainly not what the Jews were expecting. There was a lot of confusion about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah due to the fact that the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that he's going to be this political ruler, right? He's going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the king who is going to overthrow the Roman government and take back the land of Israel and sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem forever. That was what they were expecting in this Christ figure. And when Jesus came, that's obviously not what he was about. That's not what he came to do. This explains a lot of the instances in the Bible where the disciples just sound so unbelievably dim-witted. Have you ever had that moment where you're reading a, a story about the disciples and it's like, are you serious? Like you've been walking with this guy for so long and you still don't get it? My favorite is when they're arguing about themselves, like, about who's the greatest among them. Like, really? You're nine chapters into the Gospel of Mark, and you're still arguing about that? Peter, you just confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And the reason is because they're expecting him to be this political ruler. And so the reason it's important that they know who's the greatest among them is because they're wanting to be vice messiah. Right? When Jesus assumes the throne, they're looking for power because that's what they're expecting Jesus to do. They think, okay, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah, and he's going to go take Herod out of the way. He's going to get rid of Pilate, he's going to get rid of all of the oppressors, and he's going to make a throne on Jerusalem. And it's never going to fall. This is the end times. That was what was going through their head. And Jesus makes it evident that he hasn't come for that. In John 18, he says it very clearly. He's before Pilate, um, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response in verse 36 is that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And the Greek word here that's used, it has this idea of kingdom, but it also can mean like kingship, my dominion, my authority. And so Jesus is saying, look, my authority doesn't come from overthrowing any of your governments. If it was, then my, my servants would have been fighting. We, I would be building an army right now, and I would be marching into Rome and taking you guys out. That's not what I'm doing here. And so if not a physical kingdom... What did Jesus bring with him? What did the birth of Christ usher in? What kind of kingdom is it? Well, if it's not physical, it's a spiritual one, right? John Piper, um, in response to the question of whether the kingdom of God is future or present, part of his answer was this. 
the kingdom really has arrived. Unprecedented fulfillments of God's purposes are in the happening. The king has come. The king has dealt with sin once and for all in the sacrifice of himself. The king sits at the father's hand and reigns now until all his enemies are under his feet. The king's righteousness is now already ours by faith. The king's spirit is now already dwelling within us. The king's holiness is now already being produced in us. The king's joy and peace have now already been given to us. The king's victory over Satan is now already ours as we use the sword of the spirit, the word of God. The king's power to witness is now already available to us. And the king's gifts, the gifts of his spirit are now already available for ministry. White Oak, if there's one idea that I want you to take home with you, it's that the kingdom of God is here. And it has the power to change your life now. And the coolest part about it is that the kingdom of God is also still coming. Look around you, not here, but like in the world. And you'll see that though there is power that Christ has brought for today, that it's here, present, in us, we are all living testaments to this power, to the power of Christ's victory over Satan. And in our lives, there is still sin and suffering and brokenness and evil in the world. There's still a need for the physical destruction of all evil, for the literal outcast of sin once and for all. And scripture is very clear that that day will come. Much of the gospels, Jesus instructed his believers about what to do after he leaves, promising that he will come back. Ingrained into the fabric of Paul's letters is this hope in a future day when Christ will return and destroy every remnant of sin and suffering once and for all, when the kingdom of God will be brought in the fullness of its glory. The book of Revelation, just, let's just leave that at that. It speaks of a time when the enemy will be utterly vanquished and we will live in the new creation that God has completed. The kingdom still has yet to come, and we eagerly await the day that it will. Now, if you've been following along closely, you'll realize that I have blatantly contradicted myself. My first point was that the kingdom is already here. And my second point is that the kingdom will one day in the future come. And these points are in obvious tension with one another. And the reason for this tension is because this tension so clearly exists in scripture. They are both so clearly illustrated on so many different occasions that we just live with both of them. And it opens our eyes to the reality of what today is. It tells us of a reality where the kingdom is at once already here, but at the same time not yet here. And we live inside of this tension, and it's awesome. Because I want you to think about your role in God's story, right? If you guys remember, like, the the story, like, the illustration of a plot, how it's like there's an exposition, and, like, the rising action and rising action, and then it hits the climax, and then there's the falling action and resolution, and that's, like, the basic formula for a story, for a plot. It's as if all of the rising action 
was the Old Testament. And in Jesus, everything that he did on earth was the climax of history. And now we are in the falling action going towards the resolution, but the resolution is not yet here. There are still things to do. But the final battle has already been won. The deciding battle in this war of history between God and the evil powers that truly do exist, it's already been decided. Jesus has beat Satan once and for all, and that is the victory of the kingdom that Jesus brought when he lived and died, and resurrected, and ascended. And now we still have to finish the war, but we already know who won. This is an amazing time where we have the abundance of joy and peace available through Christ and his Holy Spirit, as well as the promise of future abundance, which will surpass that which we have already been given. We are now ambassadors of the king, sent out to bring the gospel of the kingdom to those who need deliverance. We are the New Testament prophets who proclaim to the world the day when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. The day when he will sit on his glorious throne. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, people of great wealth because of the knowledge that we have in Christ Jesus. We are adopted as sons and daughters, as heirs to this glorious inheritance that awaits us on the edge of everlasting life. This is an amazing time to be alive because we get to see the kingdom built. We get to see the kingdom advanced. Jesus was the catalyst that changed the tide of history and he started an entire chain of events that we get to participate in. That is who we are because of the kingdom that Jesus brought when he was a little baby born in a manger. All of this is our identity in a way more substantial way than our current identity here on earth. So often we forget this reality about who we are and we live our lives as if the highest authority over us is like the president, right? The one who has the most power in our eyes is the next presidential candidate. And we throw all of our hope in this next election because that's what's going to fix the problems we currently face. And while I admit that we should be involved with those things, we should be involved in actively um, participating in the events of the world, it should be done with the purpose of advancing the kingdom. Because that is our role in the history of God's people. Jesus brought victory over Satan in a powerful way, and now it's our turn to finish what he started. Our actions should always serve the kingdom that Jesus brought in the hopes of completing the kingdom along with God and one day having eternal peace and eternal joy and Everything that we've been talking about, the joy and the peace that John and James mentioned, everything that came with Christ, we are now able to participate in the act of perfecting that. We are so blessed to live in the time when we can see the kingdom of God begin to form and grow before our very eyes. Every believer that is one to the faith and is 
in advancement of the kingdom of God. When I came to this church six years ago, that was an advancement of the kingdom of God. If you're a new believer this morning, you are an advancement of the kingdom of God. The rapid growth of Christianity that is happening all across the world, in China especially right now, that is a massive advancement of the kingdom of God. We are heading towards the resolution that Christ has promised. He has empowered us to follow him in his life's work. We belong to the kingdom of heaven before we belong to the United States of America. And every action that we do here, every political movement, every business deal that we participate in, all of it should be done with our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God at the forefront of our minds. So as we close our service, let's eagerly look forward to our celebration of the birth of Jesus, who was the Christ, the King, who brought the kingdom of God unto us. Pray with me. Father, we sit and we recognize what you did when you came. We recognize all of the joy and all of the peace that you brought us by ushering in the kingdom. Ushering in the kingdom of God that the Jews were so eager for, God. And we thank you for doing it in such a way that allowed us to be a part of it. Every single person in here is probably a Gentile that has been accepted into the kingdom of God. Father, we we pray that you would continue to empower us as, as we reflect in this season on the birth of Christ and everything that meant in the magnification of that moment. We pray that we would be able to exist in our daily lives and all of the joy and all of the peace that comes with being a part of your heavenly kingdom. So as we close and as we worship today, we pray that we would sing as citizens of the kingdom, participating in an act that will forever be in your kingdom. Worship of your name. Father, we hope to bring you glory. And we hope that our worship would be pleasing to your ears and that we would be empowered by the Spirit that brought us the kingdom of God. It's in the name of the Christ that I pray. Amen.